The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. My name is Tyler, and I normally do the singing and playing of the guitar in this place. But this morning, I have the privilege, because Matt is out of town, and Craig went last week, of being the third-string QB and stepping up to preach. So I'm glad to be here this morning. Call me Tim Tebow. Hey. Thanks, Jordan. And, uh, but can we thank the Barefoots for stepping in this morning and leading us in worship? They do a great job. Um, so we are in the middle of a series called Portraits right now, as you can see on the screens. And the subtext there is seeing the grace of Jesus in every story. And so what we're trying to do in this series is look at figures in the Bible in the Old Testament and see how Jesus is actually the true hero where they failed, that the entire Bible is actually pointing from beginning to end towards Christ as the author and finisher of our faith. And so today we arrive at the very interesting and famous story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Has anyone heard this story before? Okay, awesome. Well, before we dive in, I saw a few hands, great. Let's pray together. Father, I am uh, excited about what you're doing in this church. I love this church. I love what you are doing, and this all begins and ends with you. So what we need this morning is not a word from Tyler Miller, a flawed, sinful man. We need a word from you, and I'm thankful that we have one because you wrote us a book called the Bible, and it speaks to us. And so this morning, I pray that that is what would be taken out of this place that we would open our hearts and our minds to your eternal, flawless, infallible word, and that it would penetrate and do work in this building. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. So we are right at the end of the summer. Did anybody feel the weather shift this week, the cold days, the fall? I got to put on a long, I put on a flannel this week, so I knew that the weather was changing. And it's funny because I stand at the beginning of every summer season and I always find myself thinking summer's here. It means days at the beach. It means getting out and relaxing and being with friends. And what actually ends up happening is the summer flies by and I do nothing and I made it to the beach one time and I stand like I do today at the end of the summer going, well, that was a wasted three months. Oh, well. But there was one thing this summer that I will take with me and hold forever in my heart that did happen and that I did carpe the diem, seize the day. Um, with, and it was a little thing called the Olympics. Did anybody watch the Olympics in the building this morning? I may have been guilty, and by may I mean was guilty, of binge watching the Olympics. Um, I did not just get into the primetime stuff. Like, for those of you that just watched the primetime Olympics, you're like, down here, I'm way up here. Like, I was into women's weightlifting, I was into kayaking, I was into rowing, and my personal favorite, Olympic speed walking. Anybody? Can't, can't bend the knees, just gotta... Sorry. Okay. Well, now that we've done that, the ice is broken. Um, It's amazing. Next, four years from now, mark your calendar, Olympic speed walking. Um, But by far this year, my favorite thing about the Olympics was watching the Olympic swimmer by the name of Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian of all time, race against a South African swimmer named Chad Leclo. Now, Four years ago, in 2012, Michael Phelps was at a bit of a low point in his career, we'll put it that way, and he ended up losing his number one event, the 200 fly. I'm going to try to talk like I know about swimming right now, but I don't. Um, The 200 fly, 
one of his best events. He lost it by five one-hundredths of a second to a South African swimmer by the name of Chad Leclo. Leclo then went on to bask in his victory for four years by publicly poking the bear that is Michael Phelps. And it wasn't a good idea because here I sit, chimichanga in hand, watching Olympians reap the benefit of a sound diet. And I see this on my TV screen before the big rematch. Look at, look at LeClaw in the ready room, Rowdy. It's like he's going through a boxing routine and Phelps is like, are you kidding me? Oh my goodness. I have never seen anything like that in the ready room. You play some games sometimes when he's standing right in front of Michael. And look at Michael's game face. Phelps, as always, lets his swimming do the talking. <laughs> look at, look at, it's like he's growling like a dog. Oh my God. You can send your emails to tyler at storycitychurch.com. I was questioned if I should show that. That look right there, we kind of didn't get the perfect still frame, but there was a moment literally where the announcer said he's growling like a bear. And he was. Poked the bear, like I said. That sums up everything we love about the Olympics. That look says, I, am, I don't want to just beat you at swimming. I want to literally beat you physically. And I'm going to do it. Stop dancing in front of me. Just for the record, Michael Phelps did beat Chad LeClaw and regain his place as the one true champion, America. <laughs> right? But today we get to look at a story in the Bible which makes Phelps versus LeClaw look like the kiddie pool. Make it look like they were in diapers. Today we get to see what happens when the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Yahweh and the Holy Spirit, this Trinity God, take up arms like a poked bear to prove their dominance. That's why we love the Olympics, and that's why we love stories like this. We want to know who is real and who can't quite cut it. Well, today we have a story in the Bible that does just that. But before we jump into our text, I want to do a little legwork to help us understand what's going on at this point in Scripture. So if you could, think of these next few minutes kind of like the scrolling yellow text at the beginning of the Star Wars movie setting up the plot with a bunch of name of emperors and things in it that I can never understand as it drifts off into space and I'm trying to keep up. Think of that like this. We're setting the text up here. So somewhere between the 8th and 9th century B.C., about 150 years after last week's event, which was King David, God's chosen nation Israel... They're not doing real hot. They've been caught up in a succession of bad, terrible kings who scripture says over and over again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Until we reach down seven kings in to King Ahab and his wicked queen Jezebel. Now scripture says that this king did more than all of the kings before him to arouse the anger of the Lord God Almighty. Not a good thing, right? We don't want to be that guy. And so... What Jezebel and Ahab are doing is they are intentionally going out of their way in a calculated campaign to remove the Lord God Almighty as the one true God of Israel and make Israel a religiously pluralistic nation. So they want to say, sure, you can have Yahweh, you can have your God Israel, the God that saved you and called you out of Egypt, but in addition, we're going to throw all these other gods in the mix, and we'll just call them even, we'll call them equal. And the God that they had primarily embraced was a God named Baal. Now, Baal was the god of rain in this culture. And you got to think, 
Rain is the most important thing to these people. They live off the land. No rain means no food. No food means no flourishing and no life. So as a result, these people had turned from God who actually brings the rain and turned to this false god, Baal, and begun to worship him. And so God does this. He sends a drought into the land. He says, oh, you want to worship Baal, the rain god? Well, we're going to see who the real Lord of the storm actually is. And so the way God announces this drought is by sending a servant. When God wants to do something great, he sends a man. He sent Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet of God. Elijah arrives on the scene in our narrative pretty unannounced, without much fanfare. In 1 Kings 17, 1, he shows up, and the Bible just says, and God sent, it. God sent Elijah in. So we don't know a ton about him coming in, but what we do know is this. He was a prophet of God. Now, prophets were men in the times who had a line on truth from the God, a word from God for a culture that had forsaken him. And so you can kind of think of it like they were a little weird, they were a little off. They might not have been the guy you were going to invite to your party. They might not have been the guy that you understood completely. Let's put it this way. If we really had to know Elijah, there's an author named Flannery O'Connor that I love that said this in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way. She said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. And this truth, this line of truth that they had from God, this word from God pulled them aside. So they were generally considered maybe Eeyores, like they saw him coming and the people ran. They're like, more bad news. Elijah in particular maybe had, may have been the kind of guy that you would um, see there, uh, his Facebook profile. Let's say Elijah had a Facebook profile. You might have left him in the purgatory that is. You know how when you click on your friend request, all the friends go down and there's, yeah, I don't know, I'll decide later on. Well... <laughs> Elijah might have been the guy you leave in that purgatory. If he had a Facebook profile back then, it might have said something like this. Name Elijah, the Lord is God of Tishbe. Because Elijah's name literally meant the Lord is God. He was very passionate. His bio might have said, I'm a zealous prophet of the one true God. He speaks to me. Generally, if you put God speaks to me in your Facebook bio, you're probably not going to get a lot of friends. And his interests might have said, or hobbies might have said, praying, mostly for severe drought in the land. Because in James chapter 5, verse 17, in James chapter 5, verse 17, Scripture tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, but he prayed passionately that there would be no rain in the land, and there was no rain for three and a half years. Think about this. This guy prayed on his knees for drought. But what we need to know above all about Elijah is this. Up front, we need to understand that he was taking his orders from God himself and that he was a man who was very, very zealous to see God reign as the one true God in Israel and to see Israel forsake their idols. And we know this in 1 Kings 19.10. Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God. We also know that he heard from the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to him at multiple occasions in our text. So, through Elijah, God confronts King Ahab, and he says there's going to be a drought. And then for three years, God kind of stows Elijah away and lets the drought have its way and miraculously provides sustenance for Elijah. Until three years later, he sends him back, says the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he sends him back to confront King Ahab. And when he does this, I love this, he comes to Ahab and he says, hey, Ahab, Gather all your prophets, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 other prophets, and bring them up to Mount Carmel, and we are going to have a showdown on top of a mountain to prove whose God is real. you got to love the guy's style. 
right? And so many times when we read the Old Testament, we think, that's kind of hard to relate to. I don't understand why people are responding the way. Elijah is a guy we get. He speaks our language. He says, we're going to have a showdown, and we're going to prove who the real God is. To give us some context, this would be equivalent to our, in our day to somebody renting the Staples Center out and filling it with all of the influential celebrities of the day, putting them up front and center, and then filling it, selling tickets to the rest of the community, all the news cameras there, everybody watching, the number one hashtag on Twitter, Elijah versus, uh, Elijah versus Ahab, Yahweh versus Baal, everybody's watching on their phones, the tweets are blowing up, this is a big deal, and right now we're going to find out who the real God is. So let's look at our text for the morning. I'm going to warn you, it's a little lengthy, but I'd ask you just to tune in. We're going to read it once. It's 1 Kings 18, verses 20 through 39. Let's read that. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it, in, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the pole given them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid, the wood, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's the word of the Lord this morning. So that's a lot, and there's a lot there, but I want to extract two simple points for us from the text this morning. Number one, I want us to look at the cost of faith in false gods. And number two, I want us to look at the promises of faith in the one true God. So first, let's look at the cost of faith in false gods. And the first cost that I think we can pull from this text is that false gods always make you work for their approval. False gods always make you work for their approval. In our text, we see in verse 26, they took a bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, and Baal Baal answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. So we read here that the prophets of Baal were calling out to their God, and they couldn't get an answer, so what do they do? They begin dancing around this altar that they had built. Dancing, dancing. It says that they literally dance from morning till noon, wearing themselves out. I think it's probably a pretty funny scene here. I wonder what Elijah was thinking as he watched them dancing, dancing, trying to get their God to pay attention, but they said there's no one paying attention. What are they doing when they're dancing? What are they trying to do? They are trying to perform in a fashion that will get their God to come through for them. And this gives us a principle of serving idols or false gods. You know you are in the grips of a false god when you find yourself having to perform for its approval or action. So let's do a little legwork to nail down what this actually means today in 2016, because I think a lot of you are saying there's not been a time recently where I've built an altar in my bedroom and danced around it. Like, what does it mean that I dance before false gods? What does that actually look like? Well, I learned as I was studying this passage this week, I always assumed that Baal was the literal name of a god like Zeus or Apollo, but a Baal was actually not a person. It was a designated type of spiritual lord to them. So this was a rain Baal, but there were also money Baals and party Baals and military Baals. They had all sorts of Baals. Anything that they depended on, they would set up as a god and begin to worship it. And, you know, we hear this and we think, oh, that's, that's so primitive, right? How primitive of this culture to worship everything and call everything a God. But the reality is they had actually tapped into something very real about the nature of our existence. And that is this, that there is a spiritual power behind everything. We in the Western world like to live under the illusion that what you see is what you get and there's nothing beyond that. So I don't worship money. I don't dance at the altar of money to make me happy. I just really like nice things, and I'm just going to work hard to get it. I don't worship pleasure. I just really like to have a good time. I don't dance at its altar for satisfaction. I don't worship my work. I'm just committed. I don't worship power. I just like to please people. See, we have this way of making everything just in the here and now. There's a line from one movie called The Usual Suspects that says this, the greatest trick the devil ever played on mankind was convincing them that he didn't exist. There is a spiritual power behind everything that we see. So, for example, to flesh this out a little bit, 
Brooke and I, my wife and I, have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and as a result, we don't get out of Burbank too much. I can feel you judging me. Um, but the other day, we actually wound up taking a drive through Hollywood, and something that just shocked me as I drove through Hollywood is left, right, front, center. There are all these billboards, and on all of these billboards, there are these scantily clad, skinny women just making goo-goo eyes at me. I'm like, back off, all right? Now, what are these signs? What are they? Are they just information? Are they just trying to tell me about a TV show? No, there's something behind them. There's a power behind them. They are preaching to us, telling us what beauty is supposed to look like, telling us how to relate to one another in a sexual sense, telling us what sexuality should look like. Now, if a young woman in LA driving through Hollywood over and over again on repeat sees these signs, the magazines, what's on TV, presenting our culture as what we should perceive as beauty, what happens to her if she lets that power that is standing behind those signs pass deep into her heart? and convince her that that is what beauty and sexuality should look like. She sets up a standard for herself. She begins to dance around the altar of that image, that spiritual power. Maybe she develops some sort of unhealthy eating habits. Maybe she begins to become dynamically dependent upon men for approval, and she has to have that to feel okay with herself. Maybe she starts speaking to herself, you just don't measure up, and she begins to reorient and recenter her life around pleasing this false god. What happens if that happens to a man? And I would argue that for many men, I can relate to this one a little bit more because I am one. It does and has. What happens to a man if he lets those images of women become the standard, the spiritual Lord? Well, he begins to pass up all the wonderful girls around him that don't meet that false standard. He begins to not be interested in non-airbrushed women, which are the only kind of women that actually exist. Maybe he develops a dependency on pornography to feed the need that his false God, that false image has given him, and he begins to dance around that altar looking for satisfaction, always needing more, and it's never enough. See, our false gods always make us dance, and they never come through. That's just the first cost seen in our text. Your false gods will always make you earn their approval, but secondly, it doesn't stop there, another level. Your false gods will always make you harm yourself. That's the final stage. The way you really know that you're in the grip of a false god is that you begin to slash or harm yourself. Now, that sounds weird, so let's look at our text. Verse 28 and 29. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So what's going on here? They can't get what they want out of their false god. He's not responding. They've done their dancing. So they begin, as was their custom, to literally slash themselves to try to get their god to come through for them. Until they're bleeding, it says. The final stage of all Baal worship or worship of spiritual lords, false gods, idols, is self-harm. It's self-harm. Now, how does this flesh out again in 2016? What does this look like? Well, here's an example. Two actors or actresses move from somewhere else in the country to Los Angeles to become successful actresses or actors, and they've set their heart on it. They both are excited. I'm moving to LA. I'm going to make it big in the industry, and neither one does. Okay, let's say neither one does, but one of them seems to move on. One of them seems to be okay. Okay, I didn't make it. It was, 
that's okay, I'll move on, I'm gonna get on with my life, they find another career path and they're okay. Another one, the other one, this failure ruins them. They are crushed by it, they can't move on, they begin a process of self-loathing and negative self-talk. I can't believe I didn't measure up, I can't believe I didn't make it, I'm worthless, I'm not enough, I'm not good. What's the difference between these two? For one of them, acting was a desire, a career, something good to pursue, but for the other one, It literally had been set up as a spiritual Lord. It was the thing that was going to make them okay with themselves. It was the thing that was going to make them worth it. It was the thing that was going to prove to them that they were enough and bring them fulfillment. And when it doesn't, they begin to slash themselves. They begin to say, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. Does that make sense? See, we all wrestle with this. We all must be aware of our struggle. If you're sitting in this room, and I'm, I was so convicted as I studied this week, what are the things in my life that I set up and give spiritual authority to in my life other than God? We all wrestle with this. If you hear this and you think, well, that's not me, think again. <laughs> this is all of us. This is the human problem. It is the problem of idolatry, of ascribing something other than God, ultimate worth. And when we set something up other than God as our Lord, we turn it into an idol, a spiritual Lord, and it wrecks us. First, we must perform, and when that doesn't work, the self-talk, negative self-talk happens. So we see the danger or the cost of faith in false gods. That's our first point this morning, but now the good news. Now we get to the good part. Let's look at the reward or the promises of faith in the one true God, Jesus Christ. So the prophets of Baal have had their go. They failed. They can't get their God to respond. They're tired from dancing, and they're bleeding all over themselves. They've made a real mess of things. But in verse 30, Elijah steps forward and says this. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. This is our first point on the promises. We have the promise That faith in the one true God comes with the promise of a new identity. A new identity. So let's see how this is pulling out of the text. So it's Elijah's turn. What's the first thing he does? It's kind of surprising. You would think he's just like, all right, fire, bam, go, we're done, let's go home. It's not what he does. He pulls the Israelites in and he says, come near, team huddle, team huddle. And he begins to carefully construct an altar out of 12 stones that have been torn down, meant to represent those 12 stones, the 12 tribes of Israel. In a sense, what he's doing is he pulls them forward and he's saying, look, this is the altar of the God who called you and loved you. And it literally says, named you Israel. You're his people. You've gone in search of other gods. They're not working. You're dancing. You're slashing. It doesn't work. This is who you are. He's reminding these people of their true identity. You know, isn't it funny that in our culture today, this still works? When we get really caught up in a sin, when you, we all have somebody in our life we know who's just really, really stuck. Maybe it's you. And they just can't pull themselves out from that mess that they're in, and they stay there dependent. Maybe it's alcohol. So it's interesting how our culture begins to rename us according to our failures, isn't it? What, what do we call somebody who can't get out of an addiction to alcohol? We begin to name them. What do we call them? We call them a drunk, an alcoholic. What do we call somebody who is just absolutely caught in the throes of worshiping the false god of sexuality? We rename them. We call them things like perverts. What do we call somebody who is just absolutely stuck and cannot get out from these things? What about somebody who is 
stuck in an addiction to drugs. We rename them and call them a drunkie, so on, a junkie, drunkie, a junkie, so on and so forth. Our false gods begin to rewire identity and the slashing begins and continues. And not only does culture start preaching, this is who you are, this is who you are, but we ourselves begin rewiring our own identity and the negative self-talk begins, I'm good for nothing. I can't pull myself up. I've lost myself. So our false gods first make us work for an identity that they can't deliver on and then they begin to rename us and condemn us for that very identity. But what does God do? When God intervenes in our mess, he always starts here. He starts by reminding us who we are. This is who you are. If you are in Christ this morning, you are a son or God, son or daughter of the living God. You are not defined by your failures. You are defined by what your father says about you. And God wants us to remember this is who we are. You are not defined by your failures. You are defined by your father. There's a line in a movie, one of my favorite movies. It's actually, I'm, it's technically from the book. I've confessed this before that I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Um, there's a line in the second book, one of my favorite quotes, and Captain Faramir is walking along and he says to a companion this simple line, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. I can't think of a better quote that sums up the city we live in. The praise of the praiseworthy. What is this? You move here trying to make something of yourself so that you can get noticed by people who matter and become someone who matters. What is that? You are seeking the praise of the praiseworthy. It's above all rewards. There's nothing that feels better than when someone we respect, look, look up to, looks at us and says, job well done. A Christian is somebody who understands that that identity has already been given to us as a free gift of God. We have the condem commendation the commendation, we are commended by a loving heavenly father who calls us his kids and tells us who we are. We have the praise of the praiseworthy. We don't have to earn it anymore and our failures can never undo it. So where our false gods try to warp the identity they make us dance to earn, the true God gives us a glorious identity as beloved children of the most high God and that is something we can rest in. So first we see one of the promises is a promise of a new identity and Elijah reminds the Israelites of this as he gathers them around before he does anything and says, this is who you are, you're Israel. The second promise we see is that faith in the one true God comes with the promise of God's constant care. Faith in the one true God comes with the promise of God's constant care. We see this in verse 36. Elijah prays out, with confidence, such a contrast to the dancing and slashing of these uncertain and unstable prophets of Baal. He just steps forward and calmly prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know, Lord, know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. See, Elijah already knew that his God was listening. Elijah had a calm and confident resolve that his God cared for him. So Brooke and I, like I said, have a two-year-old daughter named Gracelyn. And one of the things that has become truly amazing about me, about my wife, is that she can be in the kitchen with pots boiling and water running and the dishwasher going, and I can be sitting in the living room and there's all sorts of clanking coming from my daughter's room because she's playing with her toys and whatnot. And to me, it's just a chorus of noise. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my wife has these ears that go, that was a bad noise. 
And I'm like, what? That sounded like ex- literally exactly like everything else. But my wife knows. And she runs to the room, and sure enough, my daughter is in need of something. She's fallen, and she can't get up, or she's stuck in some random box that she shouldn't have crawled into, or trying to crawl into her crib, and she's hanging halfway off, and it's like Sylvester Stallone and Cliffhanger. Anything. Who knows? It could be. But my wife, literally, I don't know. It's like mom sense. I just think it's a thing. To be a Christian is to understand that God knows you like that. That God loves you like that. That he understands what you're going through. That he knows the messes you're going to get into before you do. That he can read you. That he can see you. That he has constantly has his eye on you. You don't ever have to dance. You don't ever have to earn. You don't ever have to slash. He loves you because of what his son Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that's sealed. And it can't be unearned because you never earned it to begin with. It was a gift. That's good news this morning. Listen to these words in Psalm 139. Receive them as a promise if you question this morning God's care for you, Christian. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Do you believe that this morning? That God has more thoughts for you. Go go to the beach. We live near the beach and look at the sand and receive that promise that more than the grains of sand on a beach are God's thoughts towards you. That will transform you. That will change you. That will stop your desperate search for the world to tell you who you are, and you will receive the promise from God, you are my son, you are my daughter, my heart is set upon you, I love you. I mean, that is a transformative truth this morning, and we all need to be reminded of it, that as believers in Jesus, we don't have to dance Our God is already listening. That is a promise. We see the promise of God's constant care. And thirdly and lastly, we see the promise that faith in the one true God comes with final victory. Faith in the one true God comes with the promise of final victory. In verse 39, Elijah simply steps forward and fire falls. And he literally poured water all over everything just to make a point. And the, and the Bible says that fire didn't just fall and consume the offering. It burnt everything up, gone. The water, the stones, the sacrifice, all of it, gone, vanished. And the people fell down and cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So Elijah had his victory. Twitter's going crazy. But let me ask you this. What was the secret to Elijah's victory that day? What was the secret to his victory? Was it his amazing faith? Was it the strength of his faith that gave him victory? Well, I could easily argue that the prophets of Baal had just as much faith. I think they truly believed that their God could win or they wouldn't have accepted that challenge. I don't think it was Elijah's amazing faith that gave him victory. Was it the eloquence or beauty of his prayer? Was it the passion with which he prayed? Well, I could easily argue that the prophets of Baal prayed more passionately. They were willing to slash themselves. They prayed for hours and hours and hours. No, I don't think that the secret of Elijah's success that morning was the depth of his devotion or his power of his prayer. Elijah was not saved that day because of the strength of his faith. 
He was saved by the object of his faith. He was saved by the one he was trusting in. He was in the raging river holding to the one branch that could take it. And everybody else was holding on to little limbs and twigs and they got swept away. Elijah was not saved that day because of the power of his prayer, but because of the power of the one he prayed to. Elijah was not saved that day because of the depth of his devotion to God, but because of the depths of God's devotion to him. This should encourage us this morning because I think many of us are tempted to hear a message like this and our takeaway is, okay, I'm going to go out and have faith like Elijah and I'm going to be able to do amazing things. But I don't think that's the right takeaway. I think a lot of us actually hear that and what can become is a drive-by guilting where you come to church, hey, be more like Elijah, have more faith, okay, go home and try and we fail and we feel like worse when we come back to church the next week. The message of this text is not have greater faith. It is simply this, put your faith in the right place. A weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ and be saved. And for those of us this morning who hear this story and think, that's all good, that's well, but it's just not me. I don't have faith like an Elijah. Well, take heart this morning. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. So turn from your gods that enslave you, that make you dance, that make you slash, that make you harm yourself and embrace negative self-talk. And turn to the one true God, Jesus Christ, and trust in him and rest knowing that a weak faith can still save and watch as that faith grows as you witness God's faithfulness in your life. But the question remains this morning for all of us. What are we trusting in? What are we trusting in? Is our faith in the one true God or is our faith in a false God? I think that God's word stands before us this morning just like Elijah did as he, first, as he stepped foot on that mountain that day. In verse 21, Elijah says this. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And God's word saying the same thing to us this morning. Some of us are caught in this room believing the lie that a false God can satisfy. And we are chasing and dancing and dancing dancing and trying to earn it and hope that it will come through and bring us happiness and it's failing us again and again. How long will you waver between two opinions? If blank is God, then serve it, follow it. But if the Lord is God, then serve him and follow him. And there's two simple steps here. It's the last thing I want to say this morning. There's two simple steps to turn this is your first one. You turn from your false gods. You identify them, you name them, and you agree with God that they are not real, that they are not able to save, that they do not deliver on their promises, and you walk away. That's what repentance is. It's agreeing with God about our sin. It's saying, you're right, God. So confess and forsake your false god this morning, the one that has you dancing. And then secondly, place your faith, place your faith in Jesus Christ, the one true God. Put your faith there. Put it there and leave it there. That's why Romans 10, chapter 10, verse 9 says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is God. If you declare with your mouth, just say, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's turn from our false gods this morning, and let's turn to the one true living God, who rather than making us slash and hurt ourselves, came from heaven to earth and was bruised for us, took on our iniquities, died on a cross so that he could take our punishment and we could be set free. 
This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus takes our sin upon himself so that when we come to him by faith, we go free. And God looks at us as sons and daughters of the living God. New identity, constant care, final victory, sealed up because of what Christ has done. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it's good, that it's faithful, and that it speaks. And I pray for the people in this room who feel caught in the grips of false gods, who maybe don't even recognize that they are. Would you reveal to us the things beyond you that we try to trust in and pull our identity from? Things that attempt to rename us, that steal our joy. And would you lift Jesus Christ, the one true God, high in all of our eyes? Would you make him glorious and good and beautiful so that we run to him and fly to him and don't just find forgiveness, but we find life and life to the full? God, we wanna find ourselves in you this morning. Make our sin look like what it is, like chains. And make Jesus look like freedom. Because that is what it is, God. Give us spiritual eyes to behold these things so that we can walk accordingly. Would you push back darkness this morning in hearts? God, we need victory in this city. The city needs victory. Would you bring it? Would you show that you alone are God? That you alone give life? Let the enemy just take a serious punch to the face this morning. For your glory and your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, if uh, we're going to sing one more song. If God's speaking to you this morning, just find me, find Craig, find somebody. You guys gonna take this? Go for it. No, it's great. Just find somebody, don't sit on it. We wanna walk with you, we wanna know what you're going through. Mark it down on your connect card, come talk to us. We wanna get you out of the grips of false gods and into the grip of the one true God. Let's sing, stand together.